Welcome. Thank you for watching this teaching video from Oak Tree Community Church in South Bend, Indiana. Please check out our other videos and don't forget to like and subscribe. Our mission is to help people come to know Jesus better and love Him more every day. We believe this will not only help our own spiritual growth, but also help us better influence the community and the world for Christ. For more information about Oak Tree, please visit us at oaktreechurch.com. There you'll find past message series, online giving options, and more information about our discipleship process that we call The Path. Now, enjoy this message. We'd love to hear from you in the comments or the website contact form. Thank you. All right, that's a lot of stuff, right? That was, if you, were, if, you were, if you were actually paying attention, if you were listening, you were following along, you're like, what? You know, I think she did a really, really good, yeah, is there, a, is there a period in there, number one? Do I get to breathe as I'm reading through this passage? And uh, number two, there's a lot of, of uh, weird phrases in there. There's a lot of, like, stuff, right? And so we need to, to unpack it a little bit. We're working our way through this. Uh, it's really a, a relatively short letter we call the book of Ephesians. And uh, Paul wrote this while under house arrest. He wasn't sure if he was going to uh, be released. He was in Rome. And um, so he wrote a couple of letters while he was under house arrest waiting to see if he would be charged officially or if he would be released. Ephesians and Colossians are twin letters. He also wrote Philippians at this time, probably a little bit later, closer to when he was going to be released once he found that out or was pretty sure it would happen. And we've talked about the fact that Ephesians and Colossians are what I'm calling twin letters, and they both talk about Christ and the church. Why do we need two letters about Christ in the church? It's really because of the emphasis or the focus. Whereas the book of Colossians or the letter of Colossians focuses more on Christ himself, especially as the head of the body, the head of the church, Ephesians spins around and comes from the opposite direction and says, yes, Christ is the head. He'll mention that a few times, but the focus is really on the body. It's really on the church itself. And um, I'm putting this slide up uh, every, every week because this is where we're going and we're slowly getting to some of these things now. Ephesians is really about the body of Christ in practice. And so he does explain what are we, what is the church? And he's started to do that already. This morning we'll actually get to some, some more information that defines these, or that answers some of these first two questions. What are we and how did we come into existence? But the, the bulk of the letter is really spending time on the in-practice part. How are we to function? Once we know what we are, what God has designed us to be, and that's the theme of not just this series, but the theme of our whole year, 24, is getting in shape because we are shaped or we are saved to serve, Right? We're not saved to just sit around. We're not shaped to given gifts and abilities and passions and personality and experiences just to do nothing. He's created not only good works for us to do, but he's created us for those good works. And so there's this, this uh, package deal. And so he will spend, the Apostle Paul, in this letter quite a bit of time explaining, giving illustrations about how we are supposed to function both on the physical level with each other 
and this world, and at the spiritual level, we'll get into a little bit of, of uh, uh, especially uh, even starting next week, uh, this concept of how we interact a little bit at the spiritual level. And that'll keep going. So let me scroll back here and get to verse 11, because this is where we will start. Verses 11 through 22. And um, quick review of the three sections we've seen so far. In the first half of chapter one, we saw salvation from God's perspective, especially focused on the spiritual blessings that come in Christ. One of the things that I... I um, I, uh, I was going to say deal with, but that sort of has a negative connotation. But one of the things that I engage with, with people online a lot as, as uh, former students or people that I'm in, in uh, groups with online across the world, where there is the big focus on physical blessing. They post verses a lot and they say, this is a blessing for us. Well, number one, no, it's not. And I, I, I point them back to Ephesians chapter one a lot and say, see, we've been promised spiritual blessings. And I had a question just two weeks ago. Okay, so how do we convert the spiritual blessings into physical blessings? Okay, we need to change our perspective. We've got to change our perspective, okay? It's not about converting spiritual into physical as if physical blessings are better, They may be more instant, they may feel better, but spiritual blessings are, number one, guaranteed, and physical blessings aren't. Spiritual blessings are locked tight in heaven and they will be eternal. Physical blessings are not. Okay, so let's not think about trying, okay, you know, I need to cash in my spiritual blessings, right, because I'm having a hard day or a hard life. I need to focus on a different perspective. What is God's perspective? And that's the first half of chapter one. The second half of chapter one then, Paul said, once I heard that you actually believed, because he didn't know a lot of the people, once I heard that you believed, I began to give thanks to God for you, and here is what I prayed. And so he lists out his prayer, and then he talks about God's power that he displayed through some things that that Jesus was doing. And then last week, We talked about sin and salvation summarized. Nice little bit of alliteration there for you. Sin and salvation summarized. Now, Paul was apparently about as creative as I am, which not so much, okay? Because last week I said the outline is our spiritual problem, God's solution, and the summary, right? That was last week's outline. This week's outline is also our spiritual problem, God's solution and the summary. He just took like, he's taking what he did in the first 10 verses of chapter two and he's expanding on it in the next 12 verses for the rest of this. It's like this whole chapter is like a a sort of a summary in these three parts and then an expansion of the same three parts. Okay, so if you didn't get it the first time, you get a second chance. It's a redux all the way right down, okay? So, what we're going to do is, is we just work our way through these verses. First, he comes back to our problem. He says in verse 11, remember. Now, I want to point this out. Okay, let me just highlight this quickly. Remember. This is the first, this is sort of a fun fact. I'm just going to have you stick it in your brain, and we'll come back to it in a few weeks, okay? 
This is the first imperative or command in this letter. He hasn't told anybody to do anything yet. He's just been giving information. It's been good information. It's been solid information. It's stuff that we should know, but we have not been given any commands yet until now. Remember, this is a command. This is something that he is expecting his readers to do. And this is going to apply to us as well. Okay, now that's the first half of the fun fact. You're like, why is that fun? Here's the second half of the fun fact. We will not run into another command like this until chapter four, verse 25. Okay, so almost two more chapters before we run into any commands. And you're like, there's only two chapters left. Yes, but in those two chapters, chapters five and six, and the last part of chapter four, there will be 40 There will be 40 commands to follow, all right? So he's just getting warmed up, basically, is what the thing is. He's getting revved up. He's got a bunch of stuff that he wants to tell his readers to do. But before we can do them, we have to have this foundation of the truth that we can live on, all right? This is why I say it's the body of Christ in practice. There are 41 commands in this letter. Only one of them... In, in almost the first four chapters, and that's here. So he's grabbing our attention. I need you to remember something. And this something will apply to most, if not all of us. And I'm telling you this because he actually uh, 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 lays it out here. Formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that some people, not everybody, but some people think that when that Paul intentionally creates this distinction between we and us and you. And in many, it's not every, but in many cases that we and us refers to the Jewish people and the you refers to Gentiles, not just the people reading the letter. It's actually a broader doctrinal thing. Sometimes it doesn't seem to make sense that way. Here it absolutely does. Okay, he's making a very clear distinction between the Jewish people and non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. So if you have Jewish ancestry, you fit in the first category, and you don't even have to pay attention this morning, okay? Because this is actually, no, uh, most of this is directed to the you. You have no Jewish ancestry, you are Gentiles, and he describes us, and I'm putting myself in that category, Gentiles in the flesh. Now, this is really interesting because he knows that there is a, 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 a biological, a, a, a genetic, a physical distinction, okay? Those who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision that is performed on the body with human hands. Now, he's not going to go anywhere else with that. He's just going to drop it there. He knows that the people uh, in Ephesus and wherever else that, that this letter is being read, he knows that there is often this kind of a battle between the Jews and the Gentiles. And that was true, by the way, even with Jews and Gentiles who were saved. Paul would show up at a place, and the first thing he would do is go into the synagogue where the Jews were worshiping 
the true God, even though they did not have all the information. They didn't know about Jesus yet, so he preached the gospel to them. But they had more information than the people outside the synagogue because they were at least studying what we call the Old Testament, right? They had the Hebrew scriptures. And so when Paul came in, he pointed to the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and said, that's Jesus, that's Jesus, uh, that's Jesus, that one too. In fact, all of these in this section, <laughs> right? That's all Jesus. And he pointed them to Jesus and he pointed them to the gospel. And that's where he started his local church in an area. Now, sometimes in the synagogue, there were Gentiles who believed in the Jewish God. They were not circumcised. They did not take that physical step to actually join the synagogue, join the um, uh, the, the nation of Israel by practice, but obviously not by birth, they never made that step. And so throughout the Gospels, we, we hear of people who were God-fearers. They feared God, but they had not joined because the, the, the synagogue because they weren't circumcised. And so even within the synagogue, there was this clash between Jews and Gentiles, even those who worshiped the same God. And then when they believed in Jesus and they were saved, it was supposed to clear a lot of that up. There's supposed to be unity. And sometimes there was still some of this, okay? Not to mention then outside the synagogue with the unbelievers. And so Paul is looking at this saying, listen, I know there is a distinction, especially before Christ. I know there's this big physical distinction, but I have to let you in on something that is brand new. And this is why there's so much heavy detail in the section, and this is why I'm spending so much time trying to, 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 to lay this out, because basically everything in this section from verses 11 through 22 was brand new information. They had never heard this before. You're not going to see this anywhere earlier in the New Testament, okay? At least recorded. I suppose it's possible Paul taught it elsewhere, but as far as written, if this is the first they had heard, Paul hadn't met these people before, if this is the first they had heard about Christian theology, they knew none of this. And so Paul took his time to explain what was going on in this section, okay? So he's laying it out. Here is, here is the problem. Now the problem, here's our spiritual problem. In verses one through three, our problem is that we are dead, right? And we define dead as separated from God, all right? Separated physical death is separation from the body and the spirit, the physical and the non-physical. Spiritual death is separation from God. And then eternal death is when spiritual death is made permanent, permanent separation from God. That's what he said in the first three verses. Now he comes back in verses 11 and 12 and expands on that. And he gives some very specific ways that prove that these people, these Gentiles, and all before salvation are separated, dead. Notice these five things in verses 12, or in verse 12, okay? <clears throat> Without the Messiah, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Now, he just sort of lists these things off. I want to take a couple of minutes and think through them a little bit, okay? 
And the reason is because the solution, the, the summary, he comes back to these same five and he flips it around and says, this is what we have instead. This is what you were. And you're gonna see that word formerly up there in verse 11. And the same word, it's translated differently in verse 12 where it says, at that time, it's exactly the same Greek word. So twice he says formerly. In the past, this is, uh, this is where you were. So without the Messiah, okay, without the Messiah or apart from Christ. Now this is interesting because Jesus in John 15 said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. And if that's true for a Christian, for a believer, that apart from Christ, we can accomplish nothing, much more for those who don't know him at all, right? They were without the Messiah. And the reason it's translated Messiah instead of Christ, even though it means the exact same thing, is because this is a Jewish context. There is a separation between Jews and Gentiles. And the, it, we think of Christ sometimes as a last name or, I mean, it's a title or whatever, but in a Jewish context, we need to use the word Messiah. You Gentiles used to be without a Messiah, without a Savior, without anyone appointed to do anything on your behalf, okay? Because salvation is from the Jews. It's through the nation of Israel that God sent his promise. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all of the promises, all the covenants, all the everything, including Messiah, came through the Jewish people, came through the nation of Israel. And so Gentiles were outsiders, even from the Messiah, or even to the Messiah. Okay, there was no other salvation. Then he used two really political, political references. First, he said, alienated, from the citizenship of Israel. It doesn't mean that they were in and then cast aside, okay? They were never in at all, okay? Um, this is the only place this shows up. Um, it, it just here, uh, twice actually in Ephesians and once in Colossians. So this was on his mind when he was writing these two letters. <laughs> he doesn't use it anywhere else. But this concept of, of, again, this alienation, this separation, this is, this is where the, the Israel was, this is where the Jews were, this is where God's promises are, this is where the Messiah is, and this is you. You've got nothing. You were alienated. You had no connection then he said foreigners or strangers to the covenants of promise. The word stranger, we're translated stranger there, is xenos. It's where we get xenophobia, okay? Uh, if you, sometimes you hear this in the, in the news, um, uh, especially in the context of immigration, right? People are coming to our country or going to another country. And uh, if, if uh, somebody says, oh, we need to do anything with immigration, sometimes they get, of course, attacked with the term racist, but also sometimes they'll get attacked with the term or charged with the term xenophobic. Have you heard that? Xenophobic, okay? And that's not a Z, it's X, sorry. X-E-N-O, okay? Xeno, xenophobic, is a xeno, and xenos is a stranger, is a foreigner, okay? And so they say, if you're xenophobic, you're afraid of or you hate foreigners, okay? That's what the word is. Here, Paul used this term to say, listen, God had covenants. 
This is where Messiah came from. This is where the citizenship of Israel. See, he's just building on it. God had these covenants. He had these covenants with, of promise. There were the covenants to Abraham that were fulfilled uh, through Isaac, through Jacob, through Jacob's sons. And again, that's where you get Israel. And there are still outstanding. There are things that God has not yet fulfilled. And you get none of it. None. Because you are a stranger, you are a foreigner, you are alienated, you are completely separate. In verses one through three, he used the word dead. Now he's explaining some of this separation. All the covenantal promises, even the one, even though the Abrahamic covenant that God made said, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you was fulfilled through Messiah, right? Through Jesus. So if they were separate from Messiah, if they were separate from Israel, if they were strangers to these covenants, they had nothing. And in fact, that's the very next one. They actually, Paul said, having no hope. You were living in this world with no hope. And the word hope means forward-looking assurance, right? Forward-looking assurance. No hope. Uh, the, the word uh, here, having, sometimes means to hold on to, to grasp, to cling to, okay? They had nothing, as they're going about their lives, they had nothing spiritual to hold on to. They may have had other gods, they may have had idols, they may have had other things that they thought gave them hope, but if they sat down and really thought about it, and if you were saved later in your life, maybe you were an adult, maybe you were, are not, are not um, uh, uh, pleased with your life pre-Christ, you can think back and you can say, yeah, maybe some things were good, but that describes me, right? I had no hope. I had nothing really to grab a hold of, nothing really to cling to, nothing, nothing really to hold on to. Paul uses this, um, this same concept in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when the Thessalonian Christians asked him the question, we thought Jesus was coming back soon. You said Jesus was coming back soon, and then you left, and he didn't come back, and we have people dying. We have friends who are dying. We have family members who are dying. What happens to them if Jesus doesn't come back? And he uh, uh, gives this great uh, teaching of the rapture of the church and the resurrection of those who have, have already died in Christ. But he said, listen, I don't want you to grieve. Maybe you know the passage. I don't want you to grieve as those who, what? Have no hope. It's the exact same phrase those who have no hope. In this world, apart from Christ, there is nothing of substance to hold on to. Everything, everything, everything can disappear in a second, right? Our health can disappear, our money can disappear, our jobs can disappear, our families can disappear. Everything in this life can disappear in a second. There's nothing of substance to hold on to. 
without Christ. And so when we, those of you who are Gentiles along with me, when we before Christ, before we were saved, were apart from the Messiah, we were foreigners, alienated from everything that God had had, uh, done with Israel, even the promises that God made Israel, we really had no hope. We really had no forward-looking assurance, nothing to grasp a hold of. We're just floundering around in this world, right? And some of you, like I said, some of you actually remember that life before Christ, where you're just flopping around with no hope. But it's not just apart from Messiah and the Israel and the promises, and even apart from hope and without hope. This last one, he said, without God. Without God. This is the word where we get atheist from. Okay? And atheist, in, in this context, it doesn't necessarily mean you didn't believe in a God at all. Many of the Gentiles that Paul was writing to were idolatrous. They were uh, uh, polytheists, which means that they worshipped many gods. But they had no connection to the true and living God. They had nothing. And so he is... Uh, Even just, it seems like he does this in passing. I mean, he crammed all this together into one verse. But he's really trying to unpack the the gravity of where they used to be. But that's the good part, right? Because in the first half of the chapter, there was this this big contrasting parallel. the, The big contrasting parallel was, You being dead in your transgressions and sins, but God being rich in mercy, right? We saw that in verses one and uh, four. Here we find another. Paul's just redoing the first half of the chapter, (laughs) expanding on it. We have another big parallel. Twice he says, but you were formerly, you were, this is what you used to be, but now you are. And why is it now you are? because God being rich in mercy. See, he's unpacking, he's, he's, he's expanding on these things. Um, now you were, or now you are, brought near, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away, sort of an understatement, and he'll say that again, have been brought near by, notice this, it's not brought near by Christ. It's brought near by the blood of Christ. It's not just that Jesus said, ah, shucks, okay, come on in. Okay, some people would like to think that. Some people, well, why doesn't God just forgive everybody? Because God put in in, in effect a system that we find from Genesis all the way through the Revelation that the writer of Hebrews explained very succinctly when he said, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. You say, I don't like that plan, and I agree with you. You don't have to like the plan, but if it came from God's mind, then it is the absolute best, it is the wisest thing that could possibly happen. There is no better way. And God said, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, there is no forgiveness of sin. There has to be the shedding of blood in order to have forgiveness of sin. 
And so it's not just Jesus came, he lived a good life, he said, come on in, everybody. There had to be the shedding of blood. And it's through the blood of Christ, not just Christ himself, not just his life, not just his resurrection, but the death of Christ is the thing that makes all this possible, the substitutionary sacrifice. He died for us. He died on behalf of us, okay? This builds on the truth that we saw previously in the chapter that it is not of ourselves. Remember that? This is a gift of God. It is not of ourselves. There's nothing we can do. It has to come from him, all right? And so this just is a reminder and expansion on that. All right, now, verses 14. 17, through 17, he uses this word peace uh, several times. He's going to get a little bit technical now. All right, I don't, I don't want to get too bogged down in the technical, but he's going to get a little bit of technical because he's going to explain several things that he did, that God did in order to make peace. He made peace by doing five things. Number one, he brought Jews and Gentiles together. You were formerly apart, you were formerly. Uh, you know, far away, all these terms. He is our peace who made, or who, uh, the one who made both groups into one. There's the Jewish people, there's the Gentile people. And if you look at world history and you look at uh, 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 just personality type and everything, you're like, how are these two groups ever going to get together? God can do it. And he did it through the cross, through the blood of Christ. He brought them into one group. Oh, so that means there's no more a nation of Israel. There's no more uh, you know, Gentile. We're all just one big happy family, right? No. Okay. There's still, uh, Jews don't lose their Jewishness simply because of the blood of Christ. Gentiles don't lose their Gentileness, their non-Jewishness simply because of the blood of Christ. But there is a unity, which is a theme that he's going to start bringing up as, uh, more and more in this letter. There's this unity now that can exist, not because we like each other now, not because we're best of friends, not because you know, you know, we go to church together, but the unity comes through the salvation. The unity comes through the cross, Okay. If you find that you cannot get along with another Christian for any reason, ultimately that's fine, okay? We'll see in chapter four that we have to tolerate each other, but uh, <laughs> uh, they're, 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 just, they're people that you're just not going to, you know, call it have chemistry with, your personality clash, you know, whatever. You're just not gonna get along. And overall, that's fine. God does not expect us to get along with everyone on the planet, even every Christian on the planet. However, that said, there still needs to be a unity because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't have to like everybody. You don't have to like everything that everybody does. You do have to have some kind of unity because it comes through Christ. Both groups into one. Number two, he fulfilled and ended the law. Verse 15, he nullified in his flesh the law of commandments in decrees. This is the, the, the commandments, the law, the decrees. He's explaining, he said, listen, 
Israel had this. The Gentiles never even really had this. But the word nullified, sometimes we use that to mean just sort of written off. Well, Jesus had already said, I did not come to abolish it. I didn't come to get rid of it. I came to fulfill it, which is what he did at the cross. He perfectly obeyed the law, and then he perfectly made the final sacrifice, and the law is no longer necessary for Israel. And it's never been necessary for the Gentiles. And so what he did is when he nullified it, he's talking about the power that it had. It's over. There's nobody who's bound by the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law. Nobody has to obey it, okay? It's a one and done thing. Jesus finally fulfilled it. And so as these Gentiles and Jews are coming together, it's not that the Gentiles are now coming under the Jewish law or that the Jews are like, oh, no, I can do anything I want to. They're coming together apart from the law. It has nothing to do with the law. Jesus finished it. The Mosaic law doesn't even have to be in our sights. Okay? It doesn't even have to be in consideration because he nullified it. He brought it to an end. He did this, verse 15 continues, he did this to create in himself one new man out of two. And this is, this is where the, the concept of the church comes in. The church is not just the nation of Israel or even a subset of the nation of Israel. The church is not Gentiles or even a subset of Gentiles. It doesn't fit nicely into either group. It's actually a brand new creation. The body of Christ is this whole new thing, this new person that Jews who come to faith in Jesus are added to. Gentiles who come to faith in Jesus are added to, and the whole thing is just believers in Jesus. And it doesn't fit within either one of the old categories. It's brand new. It is unique. It's never been seen in this world before. He created a whole new man out of the two, thus making peace and to reconcile them both in one body. To God, notice again, it's through the cross. Not just by invitation, but it's through the cross. The emphasis is on his death for us, by which the hostility has been killed. So that's a new concept now. He ended our hostility. He ended our enmity. Romans chapter 5 tells us that while we were enemies... Christ died for us. Not just while we were sinners, that's true, but also while we were enemies. We were against God. We were opposed to God and everything he stood for. Our backs were turned to God. And Jesus said, I'm going to die for you anyway. There ain't nothing you can do about it. <laughs> and in doing so, the word reconcile doesn't mean a complete bringing together. Because Romans 5 tells us that everyone is reconciled. All people are reconciled to God. All things, Colossians 1, in heaven and on earth and under the earth are reconciled to God through the blood of the cross. But not everyone is saved. And so we go back to the original word and reconciliation isn't just like, okay, now, you know, like we use it sometimes today. Okay, we're reconciled, we're back together. 
In the context of enmity and hostility, reconciliation is when someone turns from away to face. Okay? So if, if this is... A, a, all right, I'm going to do it. This is the living one. This is God. <laughs> all right, this is God. And this is us, and we are facing away from God. We are at enmity, our backs are to God. What the cross did is it turned everyone to face God. It doesn't say that we are you know, believers now. It doesn't mean that we are saved. But now we are actually, I'll use the term, savable. There is no one who can say, oh, you didn't die for me. There is no one who can say, oh, I didn't know. There's no one who has any excuse. Romans chapter one says everyone will be without excuse. Everyone has been turned to face God, to face the Savior. And now what they do with that truth, they will be judged for. Do you believe or do you not believe? But it's through the blood of the cross that made that happen. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no, there can be no remission. So he ended the enmity. Doesn't mean we're friends, but at least the hostility has been changed. Okay, he ended the enmity. This, you see, this is new stuff. Okay, it may not be new to you. You're like, this is old stuff. I've known some of this for a long time. They had never heard this before. They'd never heard this before. This was brand, can you imagine? Maybe you remember uh, the first time you heard something like this, but can you imagine someone growing up in a system where uh, there was an us and a them, us and them, and uh, uh, there was, you know, never the twain shall meet type thing. You just had to, you're not sure what life is like or is supposed to be like, and you've got all these hopes and dreams, but nothing really to hold on to. And all of a sudden, this guy writes this letter that says, let me tell you how all of that changed. And let me give you some details. And let me help you think through what could be because of what Jesus did. Isn't that awesome? Okay, I know it's heavy. I know this is a really dense section. There's lists and there's all sorts of stuff. And Paul really packed some stuff together here. I know that. But it is so rich with what God did. Remember, we're really focused on, even though we're focused on the body of Christ in practice, he's still explaining what are we and how did we get here, right? What are we and how did we get here? Paul's like, you have no idea. <laughs> you have no idea. Let me tell you what we are and how we got here. This is so cool. Okay. So he did these five things as a part of his solution. Look at verse 17. Uh, he, he's coming back to this concept of peace again. And he came and preached or proclaimed peace to you who were far off. He's coming up with this concept of far off again. And peace to those who were near. That would be the Jewish people. They were near to God, whether they ultimately believed in him and in Jesus or not. They were near so that through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Okay? So, just a slide that summarizes, I've already said this, okay? I've been, just as we're working through it, but I, I put a slide in here just to summarize it anyway. This starts to build the doctrine of the church. It's not just Jews or Gentiles, and it's certainly not unsaved Jews 
or Gentiles. It's a whole new person, a new body, a new group created after the cross. That's key. And it's based on the cross. It is totally unique in human history. There's nothing like this in the Old Testament. There's nothing like this even hinted at in the Old Testament. Okay? And this is why this was new even for people who had studied the Old Testament really well. All right. Now, having made peace, he then preached peace. That's what we're seeing here in verses 17 and 18, and gave us access to the Father through the Holy Spirit. I want to jump over to Romans 4. I've been throwing out other references and verses, just one and two verses here and there. I actually want you to see Romans chapter 4, verses uh, 1, sorry, 5, that is not a typo. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. That's where the 4 comes in. Okay, look at this. Having, therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith. Maybe your translation says, having been justified by faith. Justified means declared righteous. Okay, that is the non-guilty verdict, not guilty. Why, how can a person stand in God's courtroom when we are obviously guilty? <laughs> There's no question we are guilty. How can we stand there and hear not guilty? Here's how. Because it's through faith. It's through faith in Jesus alone. Since we have been declared righteous, not guilty, by faith, we have peace with God. Paul wrote this like seven years ago. Not like from today, but from before Ephesians. Okay, He wrote Romans 5 like seven years before he wrote Ephesians. And he's got the same thing working through his theology. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch, through whom we also obtained what? Access. Access into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope. Isn't that interesting? We've got the same words, the same concepts, all built around here. It is through the blood of Christ. When we believe in Christ, we have hope, we have peace, we have access. We have all of these things that he's outlining now in, in, in Ephesians. We rejoice in the hope of God's glory. Not only this, but we also rejoice in sufferings. Not trying to cash in spiritual blessings for physical blessings, right? We rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance, character. Favorite dad thing, right? Oh, it builds character. You just, dads, it's biblical. Just point people to Romans 5 3, it builds character. <coughs> or 4. And character, hope. Something worth holding on to. Isn't that cool? The other one that, may, that this makes me think of is in Hebrews chapter uh, 4, verses 14 through 16. And this isn't to the Father, it's to the Son. Um, and so it's slightly different, but it's still worth considering. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing 
uh, with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us confidently approach the throne of grace. That's access. Let us confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace whenever we need help. Isn't that awesome? Because of Jesus, because of his death on our behalf, because of our, the, the, the salvation that we have gained through faith in him, we have hope, something to grab a hold of. We have access to God. We have access to grace. We have access to, to help We've been declared not guilty. We've been brought together into this, this brand new group, this body. All of this stuff fits under God's solution to our problem. And when we talk about salvation, we're like, yep, I'm going to heaven. Man, that is nothing <laughs> compared to when we see salvation from God's perspective. You know, you ask people sometimes, are you sure? Do you know if you died today that you would go to heaven? as if going to heaven were the big deal, okay? Going to heaven is sort of like the icing on the cake, right? There is so much more in salvation that we tend to forget about. It's either going to heaven or your sins are forgiven, and we're not sure exactly what that means, but it'll probably work out someday, right? There's so much stuff in here that we've seen in these first two chapters of the book of Ephesians. All right, let's bring it together. Bring it to the summary. So, verse 19. So, what is the result? I guess I should go back to Ephesians. <laughs> you are no longer foreigners and non-citizens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household because you have built you have been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone in him the whole body or the whole building my brain is on chapter 4 already cuz he's going to use the same thing in chapter 4 and uh, he's going to refer to apostles and prophets in chapter 4 in him the whole building there we go being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Have you noticed that he keeps referring to all three members of the Trinity, the Son and the Father and the Spirit? We saw that in chapter 1. We've seen this now several times in chapter 2. It's not just one member of the Trinity that's sort of doing all the work. You have the entire Godhead at work doing this in and for and through you, if you know Jesus as Savior. Very, very cool. All right, here's what I'm going to do. Here's the summary. The result is basically just the opposite of the problem. Here's the, if you remember the problem, the problem was, apart from Messiah, right, uh, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, uh, strangers to uh, the, the covenants of promise, no hope and no God or without God, right? Look at his summary. You're not apart from Messiah. You've actually been brought near to Christ. You have something you didn't have before. You're not alienated uh, from the citizenship of, of Israel 
And instead of just saying, okay, now you get to be a part of Israel again, actually fellow citizens in a brand new spiritual household. Brand new, created just for us, we who believe in Jesus. Not just a a, a redo of the old. Foreigners, no longer foreigners of the covenants of promise, but now we are God's own temple. And that's actually better than a covenant. We don't have to worry about, oh, am I in a covenant? Am I not in a covenant? There is no covenant with the church. There's no covenant language with the church. We are, we are, we are closer to God than a covenant could bring us. We are not related to God by contract or by covenant. We are birthed into his family. We are adopted into his family, depending on the passage you look at. We're his own temple where the Holy Spirit lives in us. That's not a contract. It's not a rental. (laughs) This is until the day of redemption, he said in chapter 1, verse 14. Before, we were without hope, not having any hope, and now we have confident assurance. And before, we had without God in this world. And now we actually have access to God and the presence of God in us. The solution is not just, oh, um, here's some stuff. The solution is, what's the checklist of the spiritual desert that you were in? And I'm going to correct them all. Check, 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 and do more. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? If you haven't thought of what salvation entails, what it truly means, I hope that this has been really, really, really helpful for you over these last, especially these last few weeks as we've been working through this. Two thoughts, two principles, just sort of my, my summary, not Paul's summary now, but just my summary. Number one, when we forget the gospel, or we don't know the gospel, I guess, we lose momentum on the path. I put 2 Peter 1.9 here. Of course, the path is our, our discipleship process, okay? And in verses uh, uh, 3 through 8, we talk about what we are supposed to be doing to be growing. But verse 9 says, concerning the one who lacks such things, who's not walking on the path, who's not following those steps, he's blind. That is to say, he's nearsighted, since he has forgotten the cleansing of his past sins. Somebody who is saved, but they've forgotten the gospel. They've forgotten where they came from. They've forgotten what God has done for us. And so we get a little bit myopic, short-sighted, nearsighted, sort of blind to what's going on around us, and we just start doing life as if we were still back in the spiritual desert, wandering around. Peter says, listen, don't forget the gospel. Don't forget the God. Don't, when you forget the cleansing of your past sins, you lose momentum on the path. You lose momentum on your spiritual growth. And so truly understanding, number two, truly understanding what God did for us, and that's, we've spent a lot of time now, four weeks on what God did for us, Right? Truly understanding what God did for us should drive us forward in both maturity, our spiritual growth, and ministry, our service for him and for each other. 